We're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's pray before we get started. Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. We thank you for all the many blessings that you've given us, Lord. But at the top of the list, near the top of the list, is your word. Lord, how we would be lost without it. Lord, how it points us in the right direction. When we're at the crossroads and at the fork in the road, it gives us wisdom as to which path to choose. It shines light into our darkness. Lord, it strengthens our faith, how we need a fortified faith for the challenges we face today. Lord, we ask that you work in our hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once a pastor went to the ICU at the local hospital to visit a church member that was on life support. Well, the pastor stood at the man's bedside and spoke to him for several minutes. The patient grew disturbed, agitated. In fact, he reached for his pad and he wrote the pastor a note. Well, not wanting to further upset the fellow, the pastor, he smiled at the guy, he took the note and he slipped it into his jacket pocket. He prayed for the man and then he left the hospital. Well, sadly, a few hours later, the pastor got a call from a relative with news that the church member had passed away. Well, it wasn't until about halfway through the funeral service that the pastor recalled the note that the man had written. He had forgotten all about it. He reached into his jacket pocket. He pulled it out. He held it up to the crowd and he said, I have here a piece of paper that contains the last words of our brother. But the pastor never read it, for the dead man had written, You're standing on my oxygen tube. (laughs) Well, 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4 are Paul's last words. As the apostle awaits his execution, he writes of his final concerns. Timothy unrolls this scroll, and he discovers what Paul is thinking as he prepares for eternity. Well, chapter 3 begins. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. The Greek word translated perilous, it means savage and dangerous. Paul is warning Timothy that the closer we get to the return of Jesus, society will grow worse, not better. And here's how. For men will be lovers of themselves. Folks will become self-absorbed. They'll worship their own desires. They'll become lovers of money. They'll put money above conscience and conviction and friendship and family and even God. Men will become boasters, proud, blasphemers. They'll brag that they no longer need or believe in God. I read of a local atheist group in Madison, Wisconsin. They erected a sign right next to the city's Christmas tree. The sign read, in this season of the winter solstice, may reason prevail. There are no gods, no devil, no angels, no heaven or hell. There is only the natural world. Religion is but a superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. But evidently, this atheist group was concerned that their sign might be stolen. So they had printed on the back of the sign, Thou shalt not steal. You know, it's amazing to me, the people who blaspheme God still lean on His laws to protect their own self-interests. 
Atheists mock the idea of God, but without his moral standards of right and wrong, they can't construct an orderly world worth living in. Life turns into chaos. Also, in the last days, folks will become disobedient to parents. Once a British visitor to the United States, the Duke of Windsor, he was asked what most impressed him about our country. He said, the way American parents obey their children. Today, pop culture mocks parental authority and glamorizes rebellion. Disputing authority is today viewed as a rite of passage. A parent who hopes to teach his child respect for authority, which I hope is all of us, is not going to get much help from the society. Well, Paul continues his list, unthankful. In the last days, people will be better off and appreciate it less. They'll also be unholy. No one will fear God or feel the need to make the least sacrifice for God's sake. Verse 3, unloving. The word means without natural affection. Normal, natural ties will disappear. I heard the bizarre case of a 22-year-old Florida mom who shook her 3-year-old son to death for interrupting her as she was playing the video game Farmville. The baby dared to cry while his mom tended to her virtual farm. That is unloving and certainly not natural. People will also become unforgiving. Folks will grow bitter and self-righteous. Imagine a world where everyone carries a grudge. (laughs) Don't have to imagine too far, do you? Also, slanderers. Today we live in a social media culture where folks can tweet and post their libel and slander. People will be without self-control, brutal. According to the FBI's 2019 crime clock, in America, a violent crime is committed every 26.3 seconds. A murder takes place every 32 minutes. A rape occurs every 3.8 minutes. We live today in a truly violent society. And what would you expect after sampling the brutality on our primetime television? David Walsh, president of the National Institute on Media and Family, stated, It is tragically ironic that at the very time we are wringing our hands about violent behavior among young people, we are simultaneously entertaining them with it. You know, the same people who pay $7 million for a 30-second Super Bowl commercial turn around and tell us that TV and video games have very little effect on violent behavior. Do the media moguls really think we're that stupid? In the last days, folks will also be despisers of good, traitors. You'll no longer be able to trust people. You know, there was a day in America when a man's word was his bond, but no longer... Everyone today looks for loopholes, contracts getting renegotiated, handshakes mean nada. People will also be headstrong, that is stubborn and prejudicial. They're right and everybody else is wrong. And folks will become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And if ever there was a statement that fit modern America, this is it. People today live for the weekend. And not to go to church and pray, but to party and play. Oh, people will love God, 
But they'll love pleasure more. They'll worship comfort and amusement. Verse 5 continues Paul's last day's analysis. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And realize, you can be a lover of yourself, and of money, and proud, and headstrong, and everything Paul warns us about in his list, and yet still be religious. You can have a form of godliness. You can clothe yourself with the religious accessories, and yet deny God's transformative power in your heart. People embrace the formality without the force, the liturgy without the life. You know, the prophet Jeremiah lived among religious people, yet they were hypocritical. In Jeremiah 12, verse 2, he describes them. God is near in their mouth, but far from their mind. And this will be the case with people in the last days. They'll want enough of God to feel secure, but not enough of God to change their heart and renew their mind and reform how they live. Reminds me of a quote I read several years ago. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a man of a different color or pick beets with a migrant worker. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like $3 worth of God, please. And yet God doesn't come in many bites and in $3 portions. Friends, Jesus is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Notice what Paul says about people who like being religious without being godly. And from such people, turn away. Hey, if the believers you're around are simply playing church, it's not your job to stay with them in hopes of changing them. No, you need to remove yourself. Chances are they'll rub off on you, not vice versa. Verse 6 tells us, For of this sort are those who creep into households. The NIV reads, They worm their way in. And they make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. Paul is thinking here of the slick, smooth-talking, manipulative preacher who plays on the rich widow's guilt or nativity and milks her for her money. Oh, he knows how to pluck the heartstrings of the emotionally vulnerable in order to pad his own pockets. Beware of these people. And beware of people who are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Boy, that describes a lot of people today. Always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the Christian who's on a continual quest for the new revelation, the secret formula, the hidden key. Rather than rest in the settled truth of God's Word and let their faith mature, they run about hoping to discover some shortcut. You see, it's easier to excuse my failure on my ignorance than it is on a lack of faith and obedience. Well, verse 8. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds 
disapprove concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. Now you remember in Exodus chapter 7, when Charlton Heston threw down his, I mean Moses threw down his rod before the Pharaoh, it turned into a serpent. And yet the magicians of Egypt were able to duplicate the miracle. You remember. See, Satan also has supernatural power. In Exodus 7, the sorcerers are nameless. It's not until we get to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, that we discover who they were. Janus and Jambres. These occult practitioners duplicated several of Moses' miracles. They turned the Nile to blood, remember. They called up frogs. But when Moses brought the third plague of lice, they threw in the towel. Exodus 8 verse 19 says, Then the magician said, This is the finger of God. Paul's point here is, yes, Satan has power, but it's limited. The power of God exceeds the power of Satan. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. False teachers in the last days will demonstrate a powerful resistance to the truth, but their opposition will eventually be overcome and eclipsed by the power of God. In verse 11, Paul's final thoughts shift from the end of the age to Timothy's current struggle. He says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Remember, Timothy's hometown was the city of Lystra in Galatia. And there, early in the days, the early days of Paul's ministry, Timothy had watched the Jews stone his friend Paul. He had seen firsthand the ungodly persecution that his mentor had encountered. And Paul makes Timothy a disturbing promise. He says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You know, Christians love to claim God's promises. Matthew 6, verse 33 Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Philippians 4.19 My God shall supply all your need according to your riches, His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 13 verse 5 I will never leave you nor forsake you. How we love to recall the promises of God. Man, we turn them into bumper stickers and refrigerator magnets, pin them all over the house. But you'll never see this promise here in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 embossed on a Hallmark card. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And yet, it is God's promise nonetheless. Hey, we might as well expect it. We certainly should prepare for it. If this world hated Jesus, then it will hate us too. Verse 13 But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. In other words, Timothy, the key is not some new revelation. It's continuing 
in the once and for all truth of the Scripture. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Realize, guys, you never graduate from the Bible. I mean, you don't study the Bible for a semester and then sell it back to the bookstore. It's your curriculum for life. It's in the Bible that we find all we need to sustain and grow a right relationship with God. And Paul assures us in verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. In Greek, this word inspiration, it's the word theonoustos, literally, God breathed. The Bible is literally the words of God. And all Scripture is equally inspired. Certain sections of your Bible are not more God-breathed than others. That's why we teach book by book and chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Leviticus is as inspired as Luke. You know, there are truths that we can glean from all the Bible. I like to say it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And not only is all Scripture inspired, notice it's profitable or beneficial. Verse 16 calls it profitable. You know, there are pastors today who are suggesting that the Old Testament is arcane and irrelevant to Christians. Not so. The Old Testament is as instructive as the New in different ways. But all Scripture is definitely needful. See, Paul says the Bible is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Doctrine is what to believe. Where do you go to find out what to believe? Go to the Bible. Correction is what not to believe. Instruction is how to live. Reproof is how not to live. What to believe, what not to believe, how to live, how not to live. The Bible accomplishes all four tasks. The Word of God has been given to us that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Friends, all you need to grow and go for God is found right in the pages of your Bible. Chapter 4 begins. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Now, Jesus is returning to this earth to establish His throne on this planet, from which He will judge every soul that has ever lived. Once there was a lady, she was accused of a crime. She was guilty, and she knew she needed a crack defense attorney. A lawyer was recommended. And so she wrote down his name and address, but she delayed in contacting him. When her trial date drew closer, she realized that she needed to act, so she called the attorney. Sadly, it was too late. He explained that if she had just called a week earlier, he would have been happy to take her case. But two days previous, he had been appointed as judge. Instead of being her advocate, he had now become her judge. And this is going to happen to millions of people. Today, Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God. He's there interceding for us. He is our advocate. He is our attorney. He is willing to plead our case and secure for God, for us, God's mercy and God's pardon. But soon, very soon, when he returns, 
He'll be appointed judge. And as judge, Jesus will condemn everyone who has ignored or opposed him. In other words, don't wait to call Jesus. Matter of fact, you can call him this morning. This is why Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Preach the word, Timothy, when it's convenient or inconvenient, when it's planned or when it's spontaneous. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. We need to proclaim God's word with as much persuasive power as we can muster. Convince, rebuke, encourage, teach, stay at it, don't give up. Here's a poem you don't want to hear someone say to you one day. My friend, I stand in judgment now. And I feel that you are to blame somehow. On earth we talked together day by day, but never did you point the way. You know the Lord in truth and glory, but never did you tell the story. My knowledge then was very dim. You could have led me safe to him. Though we lived together on the earth, you never told me of new birth. And now I stand this day condemned because you failed to mention him. We all have friends who need Jesus. Verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. In the last days, truth will no longer be sought. Instead, people will listen to what pleases and teases, what tickles rather than teaches. And pastors will cater to their demands. They'll water down the Word of God and they'll pass out defective doctrines, fables, not truth. To me, one of the scariest passages in all the Bible is Jeremiah 5, verse 31. It reads, The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power. And what? And my people, my, my people, love to have it so. Christians tolerate the deception and the corruption. We end up getting the leaders we deserve. But you, and he's speaking to Timothy here, the faithful minister, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. See, perilous times have a way of discouraging faithful servants. And that's why Paul tells Timothy here to stick to his calling and to finish well. And to illustrate perseverance, verse 6, Paul speaks of himself. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. We celebrated our graduates this morning. Well, graduation day was just around the corner for Paul. He's about to depart from this world to be with Christ. And he describes the life that he had lived as a drink offering. See, in antiquity, a sacrifice was often soaked with libation or with liquid spices that would make the meat tender and give off an aroma. And this was how Paul saw his ministry as a drink offering. The believers under his care were living sacrifices for Jesus. And his influence had tenderized their hearts and flavored their lives. 
Paul was truly an A1 servant of Jesus Christ. And notice too, Paul's life wasn't taken from him, for it had already been given to God and poured out on others. So you can't take from me what I no longer possess. Paul had left it all on the field. He had given his all to Jesus. He, had passed in, he will pass into eternity with no regrets. He even speaks of his impending execution, not as death, but as the time of my departure. The Greek word translated departure is a wonderful word. Author Warren Wiersbe, he provides at least four definitions of this word. He says, first, it can mean to hoist an anchor and set sail. And that's what Paul's death did for him. He hoisted his anchor. He set sail for new waters. Second, it means to take down a tent. And again, death for Paul was taking down a tent. His physical body had been a temporary dwelling. Now he strikes the tent and goes to be with Jesus. Third departure means to free a prisoner. And death for Paul was God's jailbreak. It was God's means of delivering him from prison and persecution into paradise. And fourth, the word can mean to unyoke an ox. Paul had spent 30 years of tireless service for his Lord. Now he was entering into his rest. He saw death differently than we do. Paul continues in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul was like a marathoner crossing the finish line. Or a fighter going the distance all 15 rounds. Paul refused to tap out. He's now about to break the tape. All his Christian life he ran to win. Now the stretching and the straining will finally be rewarded. What a moment for this man. Once a little boy he received a little yellow parakeet as a birthday gift. He was painting its cage with a coat of varnish when he reached inside to remove the little bird. But the parakeet fell into the varnish and drowned. It was tragic. The boy was terribly upset, in tears. Well, his older brother found him and comforted him as only an older brother can. He said, cheer up, little buddy. At least your bird had a good finish. (laughs) The varnish, finish. And here Paul is what? He's finishing well. He's fought, he's ran, and he's kept the faith. And don't gloss over how Paul views his life. He didn't say the party's over. No, he said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I went toe-to-toe with all life could throw at me, and I kept the faith. I finished. Paul fought Judaizers and Gnostics, illnesses and weariness, Jealous people, pagan people, greedy people, physical assaults and personal attacks and vicious lies. Close friends forsook him. Churches denied him. His Christian life had been an uphill fight. How do you view your life? A stroll in the park? A tiptoe through the tulips? I believe if you live for God's glory, your life will be nothing short of a brawl. Do your job with integrity, and trust me, you'll fight your co-workers who'll like to cut corners. 
Hold high standards at home and you'll fight your teenager's compromise. Desire holiness in your heart and you'll fight your own flesh. Open up your home for a discipleship group or Bible study and you'll probably fight the neighbors next door. This world is hostile to God. Remember, it killed Jesus. Don't expect it to roll out the red carpet for you. Hey, we need to buckle our chin strap. Fight the good fight and finish well. For the winner of a fight receives a belt, a crown, an award. And this is what Paul has his eyes on. He says in verse 8, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Two types of crowns are mentioned in Scripture. The Greek terminology is diadema and stephanos. The diadem was the king's crown. It was inherited rather than earned. But the stephanos, or the laurel reef, it was the victor's crown, the victor's reef. And it was given to the winners of the Olympic Games and worn by conquering generals. This is the reward that Paul expects, the stephanos of righteousness. The Bible teaches us that crowns are passed out to Christians at the judgment seat of Christ. The Lord Jesus himself will reward believers who remain faithful to him in their life and in their service. In fact, the New Testament mentions five different crowns that we can receive. 1 Corinthians 9 lists the imperishable crown, which is given to the believer who lives a disciplined life. 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul mentions a crown of rejoicing. This goes to the person who wins souls for Jesus. James 1 verse 12 talks about the crown of life. This is a word to believers who resist temptation. Resist temptation and you'll receive a crown of life. And 1 Peter 5 verse 4 speaks of the crown of glory. This is the reward given to faithful church leaders. Well, finally, here is the crown of righteousness. And notice, it is received by all believers who kept their hearts primed and stayed undistracted by this world and lived their lives longing for the appearing of our Lord Jesus. The crown of righteousness is given to folks who love His appearing. Now, I have a friend who used to call himself Pan Trib. He explained it. He said, when it came to the return of Jesus for his church, he figured, however it pans out. He was Pan Trib. But I don't like that attitude. I am pre trib. For I believe the next thing that's going to happen on God's prophetic timetable is the rapture of the church. Friends, I love the Lord's appearing. I am longing to see Jesus. Jesus is what's next. You won't endure if you don't keep your eyes on the prize. You know, as a kid, I loved my mom, but I didn't always love her appearing. When my hand was in the cookie jar and she walked into the room, I loved my mom, but I didn't love her appearing at that moment. See, a special crown goes to the man or woman who keeps his hand off the kick cookies. Lives ready to meet Jesus at a moment's notice. 
Well, for the rest of the chapter, Paul now deals with some practical issues. And we get a rare glimpse into his personal world. In verse 9, he writes to Timothy, Be diligent to come to me quickly. See, Paul's legal proceedings weren't going so well. His appeals were almost exhausted. An execution date hadn't yet been set, but it would be soon. Paul would love to see his son in the faith one more time. Nobody should have to die alone. Hurry, Timothy. Verse 10 tells us why it's so vital that Timothy come to him. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Demas was once a trusted ally. Paul counted on him. But the world had stolen his heart. Demas had sold his soul to fleshly, selfish desires. And I know Demas' last words before he bailed out. I know them. They're not in the Bible, but I know them. For I've heard them so many times before. You know what he said? I just want to be happy. Recently, I bumped into a fellow up here at the Waffle House who'd been a part of Calvary Chapel at one time. Hadn't seen him in months. He told me he was considering a divorce. And this was his excuse. I just want some happiness. That's what Demas said. But that's not what he meant. You know what he really meant? He really meant, I just want to get drunk. I just want to be free from my responsibilities for a little while. I'm tired of my job and my wife's disrespect and the kids' rebellion and all the ingratitude. Life has gotten hard and I just want out. That's what he meant. Hey, Demas, regardless of how attractive it sounds, escaping God-given responsibilities is not anyone's ticket to happiness. Demas swapped his commitments for a few jollies. There's no satisfaction in that. On top of his emptiness, he only added alimony and child support and shame and guilt and the loss of his children's respect. Guys, life is a fight with or without Jesus. Without Jesus, it's a wild goose chase with no goose. But with Jesus, there is a prize worth fighting for. Paul was now alone. Crescens has left for Galatia. Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Remember, Luke was the New Testament historian, but he was also Paul's personal physician who remained with him. He says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. This is really interesting. You remember back in Acts 15, on his first missionary journey, Mark had abandoned Paul and Barnabas. And when it came time for their second mission trip, Paul refused to take Mark. And it created a split between Paul and Barnabas. But now, at the end of Paul's journey, he desires to be with Mark. Obviously, he harbored no grudges. He had forgiven Mark and had given him a second chance. And now Paul considers him useful to me for ministry. I find that fascinating. And then verse 12, And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Timothy was the pastor in Ephesus, and Tychicus is delivering this letter to Timothy. Paul is sending him as Timothy's replacement so that Timothy can come to Rome. In verse 13, Paul adds, 
bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. So as you're passing through Troas, get my coat. I need it. Apparently winter was right around the corner. It was getting cold in his Roman jail cell. Paul needs a coat to stay warm. Bring me my coat. He also asked for the books, especially the parchments. And this amazes me. Paul wrote half the New Testament. This was the man who took the gospel around the world, who started churches everywhere. And yet he still really needed his Bible. He said, bring me the parchments. Here's a man who stayed in God's word to the very end, until the day he died. Remember, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And that's true whether you've been a Christian for 30 minutes or for 30 years. Verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. Oh boy. Paul pulls no punches. This Alexander did him much harm. And Paul levels the worst of curses on this man. He affords him no grace, no mercy. Just give the guy what he deserves, Lord. Repay him according to his works. Paul had enemies as well as friends. And before he departs this earth, he points out to Timothy the guys who will give him the most trouble. He says, you also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. Verse 16 is one of the most heartbreaking verses in all of the Bible. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. You see, Roman courts had preliminary hearings where evidence was presented for and against the accused. A time would be scheduled for the prosecutor to parade his witnesses before the court. Then the defendant would bring his witnesses to affirm his innocence and attest to his character. Well, evidently, on the day that Paul defended himself, nobody else showed up. Not a single friend. Paul had led thousands of people to Jesus. And yet when he needed a friend, no other human being showed up to help. But Paul held no resentment. For he had learned a lesson through this, verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. So that the message might be preached fully through me. And that all the Gentiles might hear. At his trial before Nero, only Jesus stood with Paul, but Paul realized that Jesus was all he needed. I love this paraphrase of verse 17. At my preliminary hearing, no one stood by me. They all ran like scared rabbits, but it doesn't matter. The master stood by me. And then at the end of verse 17, Paul remarks about his first imprisonment. He says, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Could it be that Paul was literally thrown to the lions? That was a Roman torture. Could it be that God saved Paul by striking the big cats with locked jaw, similar to what he did with Daniel? Or Paul could have been speaking metaphorically here of Nero or even of Satan himself. Remember 1 Peter 5 verse 8 refers to Satan as a roaring lion. The point Paul makes is that God delivered him once, and he'll do it again if he chooses. Verse 18 declares boldly, The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. 
Amen. Well, greet Prisca and Aquila. Everywhere this couple is mentioned in the scriptures, we find Priscilla and Aquila hosting a Bible study in their home. Here's a couple that opened up to Jesus, both their hearts and their home. And also greet the household of Anesiphorus. Anesiphorus was also visiting Paul in Rome. Perhaps he asked Paul to mention his family back in Ephesus as he was writing out his thoughts. Verse 20. Erastus stayed in Corinth. Now, Erastus was a believing official of the city of Corinth. He's mentioned several times in the New Testament. Back in 2015, when a group of us from Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain followed the footsteps of Paul, (coughs) we actually visited the ruins of Corinth. And guess whose name you see engraved in the street there in Corinth? The Corinthian official that Paul mentions here, Erastus. It's just another proof of the Bible's historical reliability. Well, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. And if it's God's will to heal all illnesses, why did Paul leave behind a sick Trophimus? The truth is God can use illness for our growth and for his purposes. Paul continues to address Timothy, verse 21, do your utmost to come before winter. And why the rush? (laughs) Remember, Paul was counting on Timothy to fetch his coat that he had left in Troas. He needed it. It's turning chilly. Eubulus greets you as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. These were all believers in Rome. And here are Paul's final, final words. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. And what will be your final words? Will they be a cry for help? Will you show remorse or regret? Or will you be like Paul and able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. The first step to keeping the faith is to give your life to Jesus. And if you haven't made that call, you can do so today. The second step is to keep living your life for Jesus every day in the new ways that he directs. And so, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I do pray for your people here today. Lord, it is possible to have a form of godliness and yet deny its power. It's possible to get all dressed up and come to church on Sunday and yet and sing and talk and play, but have no real hunger for you, have no real change in our hearts, no commitment to you. Lord, help us not fall into that last day's trap. Help us, Lord, to be different. To not settle for $3 worth of God, but to give you our whole hearts and our whole lives. And to receive all that you have for us. Lord, I pray for those who need to give their life to Jesus today for the first time. I pray that they won't leave this room until they've done so. And Lord, I pray for those of us that need to give our lives to Jesus again, that we too will make that decision and that commitment in our hearts this morning. We love you and thank you for these things. 
pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.